in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 12. I'm not going to read all of the passage this morning because we're actually going to be covering um, the letter to three of the churches. And uh, as I thought more and more about it, I, I generally prepare kind of an outline uh, ahead of time, uh, breaking the book down a little bit, and then as I get into it, uh, sometimes I see that it needs some modification, and I realize that these three churches have some uh, particular things in common that makes them easy to treat uh, together. But in previous studies, we've learned that there are shared characteristics among the churches. And there's an interesting symmetry in the seven. Uh, Ephesus is the first one. Laodicea is the last one. There's a lot to say about Ephesus that is unique. And the focal point of that, as we learned, is that they had uh, left their first love. At the very end, Laodicea, well, there's just not anything redeeming hardly about Laodicea. It's, it's a church that's in disaster. And uh, there are some very strong messages to Laodicea. And then we go back and we look at the second one and the sixth one. Uh, and we discover that uh, those two churches, Jesus has nothing negative to say. Uh, they seem to be on target. Their lights are shining brightly, and uh, they're, they're kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then we come to these uh, ones in the middle, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And if you notice on the map that's uh, on the board, if you've been watching these appear and reappear or whatever, you see that these three churches are kind of together in their respective cities up in the northeast segment. Um, I realize the deficiency of looking at a flat relief map because if you look at a, a topographic map, you find that there's a mountain range that kind of goes through there. And uh, there's some military strategy to this area because there are passes uh, through the mountains that allow uh, land-based armies to come down into uh, what is uh, now Asia Minor. And uh, as a consequence of that, uh, Rome eventually uh, had some outposts and so forth there, uh, particularly at Thyatira was a um, kind of an important area from that standpoint. But um, these three churches kind of share some, some common issues and so uh, I want us to look at those this morning because the more I have analyzed these uh, seven churches and the three uh, that we're going to look at today in particular, the more I realize there are some very close parallels to the times we live in today. Perhaps not in the extreme because um, Rome uh, by now was sliding into some a uh, pretty horrific debauchery in a lot of ways as a culture, but um, so are we. We just haven't gotten quite as far yet, but we're on that slippery path, and we're moving in that direction, and there are a lot of similarities that we can see developing uh, in the churches. Uh, some of the unique characteristics of these churches uh, up in this area uh, is that... Uh, among them, Pergamum served as kind of a cultural center of pagan worship, 
idolatry, and education. And I put those three uh, together, culture, uh, pagan worship, and uh, education or academics. Um, it was a cultural center with all that kind of goes with that, music, art, drama, uh, all of those kinds of things that, that cultured people enjoy. In fact, every uh, civilization has a certain kind of uh, art and expression that uh, they like to, to kind of enjoy together. And these uh, Pergamum was a place where you could, uh, you know, pick any kind of uh, sort of art exposure you wanted. It was also uh, an educational center, and it had a library that was second only to Alexandria. Uh, the library contained 200,000 volumes. And you realize that they didn't roll, roll those off on printing presses in those days. Uh, those volumes were hand-copied. They were on papyri, scrolls, uh, other kinds of uh, perishable kinds of papers. And uh, they were carefully and painstakingly done by scribes. And they had 200,000 volumes. You could visit the library in Pergamum and find out just about anything that had to do with the knowledge uh, of the ancient world up until that time. But it was also a center of cultic worship and uh, Roman paganism, as were all three of these uh, towns. They kind of focused on uh, being high in the, uh, up in the mountains in the high country. They kind of focused on the, town, uh, on the uh, worship of the gods of Rome. And with the worship came all kinds of, um, how shall we say, associated uh, kinds of uh, practices. For example, I think I mentioned before, but this was particularly true in these areas, you could not join a trade guild unless you were willing to adopt the god of the guild and sacrifice uh, to the god of the guild. And so in order to uh, be in a trade, and it's kind of like, you know, we have today uh, with unions, if you're in, a, in an area where um, only unions can do the work, you have to be a member of the union in order to work. And if you're not, you, you can't work. And so as a consequence of that, um, these trade guilds operated like that. If you were not in the guild, you could not operate or practice your trade or your skill. You couldn't have a shop. And if you tried to, well, you know what happens to people that try to work in a union town in a non-union way? Uh, it doesn't go well, you know, uh, companies that try to bring in non-union labor, all of a sudden they find uh, the big rat out front <laughs> and they find all the opposition and uh, things get sort of tough. And uh, it was even worse in those days in terms of uh, not being uh, protected by law. And so as a consequence of that, uh, you had to be a part of these these trade guilds in order to make a living. Also, the, the, the temples uh, were places of 
sacred prostitution, where particularly in relation to the fertility gods and goddesses, um, they incorporated sexual immorality as a part of the worship and participating with uh, temple prostitutes was a, a part of the sacred kind of worship. And so that was widely practiced. Nobody thought anything of it. It was just the norm. This was common, uh, ordinary, everyday fare. And so uh, you can imagine what kind of environment this sort of thing produced within a city and within a culture. Um, locked up and bound up in idolatry and, and wickedness and sexual immorality and materialism, uh, all of the commerce, all of the trade, and the, the whole uh, societal attitudes towards sexuality were being governed by these pagan Roman uh, cultic institutions. And now the churches exist, uh, called out from among them. They exist in this milieu of, of a, a spiritual desert. So, as Jesus begins to write to them and, and to commend them for certain things, the, the one notable thing that stands out among all three of them, even Sardis, there's not a lot good said about Sardis, but there were a couple of things, and even there, the, the characteristic is the same. The thing that the churches were noted for was that among their number, they had been faithful in spite of persecution. They had hung in there, they had kept the faith, they had uh, honored Christ, they had not denied Him, they had tried to stay on the path of the straight and narrow in order to um, be faithful to their commitment to Him. And Jesus notes this. He says, I commend you. Uh, even where martyrdom has occurred and some have been put to death. And He, he mentions one in particular, Antipas, um, who was uh, killed among you. You have remained faithful. Now, it doesn't apply to everyone in the church. But it applied to a number in the church who, despite financial loss, despite ostracism in the society, despite rejection um, by friends and neighbors, and even despite persecution, they were hanging in there as true to Jesus. But on the other side of the coin... These churches had some problems. And the wording that is used in each case suggests to us that these problems existed not outside the church, but within the church. And so the issue was that even though there were those in the church who remained faithful and true and consistent to, to Jesus Christ, they tolerated within their midst those who did not. They did not, shall I say, fight for truth. They kind of practiced a pluralism 
where they sort of, uh, it was sort of live and let live. And as a consequence of that, uh, the church had become polluted. Friends, we face that same kind of problem today. Uh, if you've been paying attention or if you've been listening to me, uh, it's one of my favorite rants. But um, as you look at the church in America today, and I'm not talking about the liberal church or the, the old denominational churches uh, that have kind of gone by the wayside, but I'm talking about the evangelical church, is beginning to get watered down. It's beginning to uh, move in a direction that liberalism moved a hundred years ago. And the Word of God is being called into question. And along with it, uh, certain uh, practices, biblical practices, uh, certain things are becoming tolerated that at one time we had no question about. Um, you know, you can look at churches that just uh, 15, 20 years ago would never have uh, given even a moment's uh, recognition of something like uh, homosexuality. And yet, today, churches that formerly held to the truth are beginning to weaken in their resolve and open their mind to a new kind of thinking that uh, allows for divergence of opinion. And now you have within those congregations a tolerance. Uh, you have a tolerance of the idea that the Bible is not uh, the absolute infallible Word of God, but it, it is a human book that contains the message of God, but it is open to analysis and criticism from a literary standpoint and a research standpoint, and maybe we need to rethink what is actually uh, the message of God and separate it from the writings uh, of the authors. And by the way, it wasn't written by who uh, it claims to be written by. Uh, those were just names assigned to collections of literature uh, and on and on the, the list goes until we find that denominations and congregations that once would have never considered these as open-ended questions are now beginning to reevaluate. And I think Jesus would have the same message to us. He would say, some of you are remaining faithful. Some of you are being true. Some of you are standing the test. But you are tolerating. You are not dealing with those who are weakening and watering down the truth and going by the way of mainstream thought. And you are following these problems. In the case of these three churches, three particular problems are mentioned. The problem of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and Jezebel. And when you separate those out, we mentioned when we first encountered the Nicolaitans, we don't have a lot of clear teaching about who they were, but it is suggested that they were part of that uh, early group 
that was moving toward the Gnostic heresy of the second century. And what they taught, in essence, was, uh, and, and it's still taught today and has all kind of names, but it's the same kind of thing. It's this dualistic idea that spirit is good, body is evil. Um, if you go to the uh, Oriental concept, the Asian concept, I guess Oriental is not an appropriate word anymore, but if you go to the Asian concept of yin and yang, the idea that you've got to keep the forces in dynamic tension. When they're balanced, everything is well. When they're not, it's out of kilter. You've got to restore the balance, and you get that symbol with the black and the white and the dot. You know, you, you all know what I'm talking about. But it shows up in all kinds of teaching, all kinds of places, and it's very old. It goes back to ancient Persia. And it's the idea that uh, materialistic world is is the bad kind. It's it's sort of the evil side. The spiritual world is sort of the good side. And if you take that to its extreme, uh, in different, uh, you know, you can kind of take different paths. But as you begin to break that down, one of the philosophies that arises out of that teaching is, well, if my spirit is good and my body is evil, then my spirit really can't be hurt by the body. And no matter what my body does, it isn't going to affect my spirit. Nor can my spirit necessarily help my body. I coexist in this dynamic tension between spiritual good and physical evil. And so, to indulge my body in whatever I want does not affect my spirituality or my relationship with God. I can still worship God. I can still have a relationship with God. I I can still pursue spiritual things. And then I can go out on the town and do whatever I want to in my flesh. And, And the two are not going to affect each other. Well, you can see where that kind of thinking leads. And pretty soon you have people doing all kinds of things and excusing it as, well, as long as I'm in the body, I'm going to kind of go there anyway. And there's no point in trying to deal with that. Paul makes it very plain in Galatians that that the, the, the deeds of the flesh, the fruit that comes out of the flesh, is enmity with God. It's, it's opposed to God. It, it moves against God. And those fruit of the Spirit triumph and overcome the tendency of sin to pull against the flesh. Sin does not only occur in the flesh, by the way. Your mind is not flesh. Your mind is non-material. And most sin begins there. Sometimes temptation comes through the physical uh, gate but um, but the mind is where the problem really resides. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so your, your thought life drives most, well, drives all of your decisions. And so as a consequence, um, nonetheless, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit takes charge, 
begins to produce in the body and in the life beautiful spiritual fruit. Things like self-control. And self-control should be an attribute of every believer. The idea that you can't help how you act is a lie. You can always help how you act. You don't have to act however you feel. Your feelings are not in control. The Holy Spirit is in control of you if you're a child of God. And if you yield to Him, He can influence and guide your behavior. You can't do it on your own. But He is capable of causing you to walk triumphantly over the deeds of the flesh. You know, if believers could just get a hold of this one thing, our lives would be so dramatically transformed. You know, we, we're constantly excusing ourselves, saying, well, I'm in the flesh, I'm in the body, I can't help it. It just comes out of me. No, it doesn't. You let it. You let it. You choose to yield to the pull and ignore the power of God. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You can always, in His power, control how you act. There's never an exception to that. You can always do it. It's just whether you want to or not. And the more you do, you know, the old saying is like a muscle. The more you do, the more you build strength, the more you fortify, uh, the, the, the stronger you become in the spirit. And as a consequence, you gain more and more victory. The Nicolaitans were basically saying, hey, you can do whatever you want to do, which was um, kind of part of where the teaching of Balaam was going. You remember um, Balaam in the Old Testament, and he was incited by one of the opposing kings as the Israelites were going toward the promised land to go down and curse them. And you remember the story we just talked about a couple of weeks ago? He went down, and as he opened his mouth to curse them, all he did was utter blessing. And the king got so ticked off, he had paid him to curse them. And he didn't curse them, he blessed them. And he said, what's, this, what's the meaning of this? I gave you good money, and you're supposed to curse them, and you bless them. And he says, I, I'm a prophet, I can't say anything other than what God gives me, and God told me to bless them. So I blessed them. You know, you first of all, you kind of think, well, gosh, that was a pretty good guy when you get down to it. I mean, what did he know? But he goes out there and finds these people, and God says, these are my people. No, he goes back and he says, I, I can't curse them, but I know how to get God to curse them. Let's, let's send our women down there, and let's send our gods down there, and let's teach them pagan worship, and let's send our women down there to entice them, and we will cause them to get into such sin 
that God himself will curse them. That's the teaching of Balaam. And, wow, those who deliberately put stumbling blocks in the way of believers with the intent of leading them astray. Um, it's, it's amazing um, what can happen in those situations. And as a consequence, um, John is saying, or Jesus is saying to the churches, there are those of you that are holding to this kind of teaching. You are letting the culture, you are letting the, the priests and priestesses, you are letting the, the false uh, religions around you influence you. Some of you have compromised. Some of you have justified that it's okay to sacrifice to the God in order to be able to run my business because everybody does it and it doesn't mean anything to me. And frankly, God, it doesn't mean anything to most of them. It's just what you do to stay in business. And uh, that's how I have to make a living. And, 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 and so they began to justify and they began to weaken in their resolve. And as a consequence, they were being taught to follow the patterns of idolatry and immorality that were associated with those things. And Jezebel was the the priestess, the the Old Testament queen of idolatry. Uh, She was arguably the most wicked woman that ever walked the face of the planet. Um, God had a special hatred for Jezebel. Um, She was evil to the core. And she uh, promoted idolatry throughout the land. And uh, he talks about the place where Satan dwells. Satan's throne in Pergamum. Uh, Here is the seat of capital idolatry in this town. And some have fallen prey to this situation. So, what, what are the consequences? Well, failure to repent puts you at odds with God. You remember Jesus saying, He who is not for me is against me. If you are not pursuing Jesus Christ, if you're not living for Him, there is only one alternative. You are opposing Him. Many people find this hard to understand. They think they can be neutral. They think, well, I, I'm not, I don't have to be <clears throat> committed Christian. I can just, but I don't have to be an opponent either. I can just kind of be neutral. Um, you can't. If you are not living for God, you're living for the devil. You say, no, I'm living for myself. I'm making my own decisions. I'm following my own desires. I'm not living for the devil. I'm just, I'm just doing what I want to do. What's the big deal? Isn't that the original temptation? Wasn't that the problem in the garden? You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to follow Him. He knows when you eat this fruit, you're going to be like He is. 
You can make up your own mind. You don't have to follow somebody telling you what to do all the time. You can tell yourself what to do. You can be in charge. You can run the show. You can guide your own life. You can have that choice. And boy, did they get a rude awakening. Because that choice does not exist. You either follow Jesus Christ or you follow Satan. You don't have a middle ground. You can't pick your own path. If you're not following him, you may think you're deciding, but you're following the path of the enemy. And if you find yourself opposing Jesus Christ or or ignoring Jesus Christ, (laughs) you find yourself in opposition to him. And those who do not repent, if you read the text carefully, uh, I've summarized it with this statement, they will reap what they sow. If, If you keep sowing to the wind, you're going to reap a whirlwind. If you... So wild oats, you're going to harvest wild oats. There will come a time when, as they say down south, maybe here too, the chickens come home to roost. You know, there's going to be a time when it comes back. And you can't avoid it. Remember what you have heard and wake up. Wake up. And he says, if you will listen to me and do these things. I'll give you the hidden manna. I'll give you a special name. I think that was one of the questions I had, but I'm going to answer it now. And we're making a segue here into the question time, but let me just point out. What, what was manna? Wasn't it food God sent from heaven? And do you remember Jesus in John chapter 6? When the the Jew says, feed us again. You fed 5,000. Let's do it again. I kind of like this idea. And Jesus said, Moses gave you manna in the wilderness. And all your fathers wanted was to keep eating that manna. But they had something. They had an alternative that they never took. And that alternative is here. I am the one who has come down out of heaven. I am the bread of life. Come to me. I am the real source and bread of life. The hidden manna is Jesus himself. I will give of myself to you. And I will give you a name that only you know. You know, one of the things I try to do when I meet people is I try to learn their name. And if their name is not an English-American name, I try to learn how they say it. You know, sometimes people get a little frustrated with me because they say, no, but how do you say it? Well, you can just say, no, but I want to know how you say it. Because isn't your name important? Doesn't your name, as as you recognize it being called, doesn't it call up an awareness of who you are? And and when someone says your name, it's like they know me. 
Jesus says, I'm going to give you a name between you and me that only you know. It's my name for you. And that name is a special name. It represents my love for you. It represents intimacy with you. It represents my knowledge of you. I will call you by that name because you are mine. Isn't that special? You know, there's a lot of Marys and a lot of Sues and a lot of Johns and a lot of Jims. But he's going to give you a name that no one else has. Because you're special. You're unique. There's no one like you. And he knows you. And he will call you by name. Those that overcome. Huh, a little help from Microsoft there. Those who overcome will become the rulers and occupy the throne Satan has claimed. You know, one day, Jesus is coming back. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. All the demons are going to be locked up with him. You know who's going to take their place? Ruling and reigning with Christ. We are. In the end... We're on the throne with Jesus. We win. And we will walk with Jesus in righteousness and be upheld by Him before the Father.